I'm Austin Miller, and you're listening to Unfurled, the story of our flags. By the time of the 1960s, the Cold War had turned towards outer space. After Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man to fly in space, President John F. Kennedy gave America a historic goal. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. That was in 1961. At that point, the United States was behind the Soviet Union in the race for space, and experts at NASA weren't sure that getting a man on the moon within nine years would even be feasible. But nine years later, on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first two men to walk on the moon. While there, they collected rocks, took a couple pictures, hopped around, you know, the kind of stuff you'd expect the first humans to do on a celestial body that had been, well, untouchable for all of mankind's history. Imagine being an alien observing humankind as they finally left the planet. Perhaps you'd expect the humans, you know, to, to look at the rocks, jump around, and explore this moon that had been circling them for millions of years. But then imagine you're watching and then humans do something that looks to you kind of silly. They pull out this piece of red and white striped cloth and in the corners of blue and some what looks to like be white stars, they then proceed to take this piece of fabric and grab the pole that it's attached to and place it into the ground. What would the aliens watching think of that? Just, just think of this would-be hushed conversation. Wait, wait, what, what's with that? Why did they bring that thing? It doesn't even do anything. I don't know, is it a communication antenna? No, 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 that's over there. Oh, look, look, they're, they're saluting it now. Why is that? To us, the placing of the American flag on the moon is pretty iconic. Of course, the American astronauts in a race to the moon with the USSR are gonna put their flag there to say that they won. I mean, who wouldn't, right? But. Isn't a colorful piece of cloth kind of a weird thing to bring with you into space? The Apollo program cost American taxpayers about $25.4 billion. The capsule they came in was compact and had many millions of dollars with equipment inside. The nylon flag that they brought with them cost only five and a half dollars. Think of all the millions that went into launching that $5 nylon flag. I mean, of course, the astronauts came with, and it wasn't just for the flag, but this flag going into space was no willy-nilly thing either. It was not a last thought. They planned for this. NASA had a historical advisory committee that was formed to decide on what few sentimental items would travel with the Apollo crews, and what commemorative things that they would leave behind. After much deliberation and discussion, and even canvassing of the civilian population, they decided to bring the American flag. Isn't it strange how a simple square of fabric can become so important that we as a people, and I can speak as an American, as as the American people, we were literally willing to spend millions of dollars to place it on the moon. Do we ever stop to think about how flags become such a large part of our culture? How many of us have asked where flags even come from? Well, welcome to Unfurled, the story of our flags where we ask just such questions. On this podcast, we'll dive into the world of flags, and that's gonna include a number of things, including what makes a well-designed flag? How do we use our flags? How do the flags affect us and our societies? And we'll even eventually go in and discuss where flags might go in the future. But before we get to the future, we should probably take a look at the past. Just where did flags come from?
to get a better understanding of how flags have become so important in our culture as a human race, we need to go back and see where they came from. The problem is, the origin of the flag is rather unknown, and this is mostly because flags have predecessors that go back into antiquity. So let's go back over 5,000 years ago. The first flags were, well, they, they weren't really flags at all, honestly. They, they were just objects or symbols hoisted up onto poles as a field sign on the battlefield to help indicate who's who. Now, you might be tempted to think that it should be pretty obvious who your enemy is in the battle, especially ancient battles. And at the beginning, that may very well have been the case, especially in some of these ancient battles with swords and spears. But the issue is that battlefields have always been chaotic. Once the adrenaline kicks in and the two sides clash, things get complicated. The dust gets kicked up, people start shouting and screaming, and suddenly you are just encompassed by both friend and foe. Oh yeah, and people are dying. So how do you know if you should retreat or regroup somewhere, assuming you are still alive after the initial clash? I mean, these things aren't quiet, so hearing a shouted order might not be very feasible. And the last thing any general wants was for their soldiers to start stabbing the wrong people. Like, that'd be the opposite of the intended goal. But beyond that, I mean, how do you direct a bunch of people who are fighting and scrambling and screaming, trying to destroy their enemy, to go where you need them to go? Ancient armies figured this out when they began using markers to indicate what side they were on and where to rally. These types of indicators are known today as vexiloids, or flag-like. These vexiloids, which is coming from the word vexillology, which is the study of flags, were basically just poles, maybe with some animal horns, furs, or other carved wood and stone. They sound kind of inconsequential when I put it that way, but to decide whose symbols those were, they made it real easy to reorganize in a hurry. I mean, think of the perspective of an ancient Assyrian, or maybe an Egyptian, who's using one of, who has one of these things on their side to rally by. Okay, I just got a rally under our pole with the ox horns when things start going bad. It sounds kind of funny when I put it that way, but this system using vexiloids and actual flags later on persists in warfare for thousands of years and is even in some limited use still today. The oldest known vexiloids were depicted on ancient Egyptian art, and the oldest one that we have found and recovered is from Persia, and they date it to be about 5,000 years old. So we're looking at like 3000 BC. The first cloth flag is believed to have been created in the Indian subcontinent during the Zhu dynasty. So that's gonna be about some two and a half thousand years ago. Again, this is where it gets kind of complicated because we don't really know who invented the first flag or where it was first used specifically. But we it kind of emerges in this time frame and we see them kind of being used in India around this time. And so while many of these early flags don't resemble the flags of today, Entirely, the purpose was the same as modern flags up until about the last century. Going in recorded history of Europe, flags don't really emerge until the Middle Ages. At the time, the knights of that era would usually paint their heraldic symbols upon their shields to be identified in battle. So if you're Sir Lancelot, you have an image of Sir Lancelot. It's kind of like a, it's hard to explain in a podcast, but uh, if you look up heraldic signs, you'll see lots of interesting, they're kind of detailed little imageries. Uh, think of Maryland's flag, if you're familiar with that. That's actually a heraldic image. That could have been on a shield. That's actually a heraldic flag. 
Now the problem is, well, it soon became kind of apparent that having that design on a piece of cloth raised above you is a bit easier to identify on the battlefield than on the shield that you're using to, you know, bash your opponents and block their blows. You're not exactly waving that thing around trying to show people who you are, you're using it to defend yourself. So flags become quickly throughout this part of history a little more useful. And it's around this time that we see heraldic symbols being placed on banners and flags. But it's, and let me, let me take a moment here, it's important to note that while we definitely could recognize these banners as flags, the idea of a national flag hadn't emerged at this time yet and won't emerge for some time yet still. They did not really denote or symbolize entire nations or states in the way we know them today. Oftentimes these heraldic flags represented the knights or sometimes the king that they fought for. Most often, they were complex, as I said, and they could be kind of difficult to distinguish from very far away. In fact, that's one of the rules of making a good flag. Frankly, most of the heraldic flags break this rule. They're really complicated, and if you were far away, it's kind of hard to tell. The oldest national flag actually does emerge pretty early, but this isn't very common. The oldest national flag emerged in 1478. It was the flag of Denmark which is amazingly the oldest flag that is still in use today by an entire nation. Perhaps part of the reason for this is that it's just so dang simple. Uh, if you don't know what the flag of Denmark looks like, it's red with a white cross that extends to all the edges. So uh, if you, most more people I think are familiar with the Swiss flag, you know, the red flag with the white cross. Now offset that cross and then the white goes to the edges. And it's basically the Nordic cross. In fact, most Nordic countries that have a Nordic cross flag are derivatives of the, the Danenbrog, or the, the, the Danish flag. So this is going to inspire flags like Sweden, Iceland, Norway, and a couple of others. And it was the flag that was used by the kings of Denmark. And there's even a legend behind this flag's origin. So, side note, but get this. At the Battle of, I'm going to say this wrong, the Battle of Lindanies on June 15th of the year 1219, that's 1219, so some 800 years ago, 801 years ago from me recording this, the Danes, who were on a crusade in Estonia, were ambushed after dinner by well, the, the Estonians. At first, things were not going well for the Danes. According to legend, at the most dire part of the battle, the Archbishop of Lund, Anders Sunesen, I probably said that wrong too, who was with the Danes, raised his arms up in prayer as the Estonians attacked the Danish stronghold. This is much like the story uh, in the book of Exodus. It's a legend. There's some truth behind it, perhaps. It's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, just like in the book of Exodus with Moses raising his hands, if you're familiar with that from Bible study or whatever, as long as the archbishop's hands were raised as he prayed, the Danes managed to hold off the Estonians. Now, imagine you're the bishop. Obviously, after a little while, Archbishop's arms were getting exhausted. I mean, how long can you really keep your hands up in the air? The answer is not as long as you probably think. So the Danes are about to break. At that moment, the Danebrog, and that's the Danish flag, as I've said, appeared falling from the sky miraculously and apparently encouraged the Danes to victory as they managed to then fend off and rout the Estonians. It was taken as a sign of God to rally them on their crusade to continue fighting. Now, how bizarre is that? And there's, of course, much speculation and debate about the specifics of this tale, and it's actually a fascinating read if you have the time. 
But the point of this is that already by the 15th century, flags are already creating their own lore. Stories are being told about flags, rallying behind flags, flags falling from heaven, rallying your troops to rout the Estonians. It's it's kind of crazy. And maybe we think this is kind of an insane thing to believe in, but I don't know. We've got a lot of stories about these things. I'll give you an example in a second. But most of the stories around flags, even today, are centered on battles won and lost, which makes a lot of sense considering their primary usage during most of history. Think of the United States National Anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. It's literally a song about a legend with a flag. Francis Scott Key wrote it as middle of the War of 1812. Our flag was still there. It's, if you look at it, our national anthem, if you're an American, is a story about a flag. As explorers began sailing the world, flags take on a new level of importance as well on the high seas. Naval warfare, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's like a giant game of hide and seek, but we're both trying to look for each other. And there's nothing but water everywhere for miles, and it's usually foggy and weather isn't always favorable. So combine that with the fact that when two ships do find each other and engage, then you got the gunpowder from their cannons that would just make things even hazier. This was also in the time before radio. So not only do you need flags to tell who's who, but flags were used to communicate and coordinate between ships as well. Imagine you're an admiral, and you're on your ship, your, your flagship, ironically enough, and you need to tell the other, let's say you have 20 ships under your command, a big fleet of 20 ships of various sizes. You need to coordinate where those ships go. How do you control those different ships? How do you tell them where to go? Well, this is a similar problem, isn't it? The ancient Assyrians, ancient Egyptians, they've all had the same problem on the main battlefield on land. How do you control thousands of individuals on a battlefield? How do you tell them where to go? The answer that they had then was to use vexiloids or flags. With naval warfare, it was the same answer at the time. Flags. I mean, there's a reason they called the admiral ship his flagship. They made an entire code of different signal flags to tell different ships different things. You can, uh, let, me, let me bring up right now some of the flags. Naval flags and meetings. Let's take a look at this. So looking at all the flags here, you've got, I'm altering my course to port. That's a yellow flag with a black dot in the middle. It's India or I. They have the entire alphabet and flag. So if worse comes to worse, if you don't have, most of these flags have meanings behind them that say a specific message, but worse comes to worse, if you don't have the flag that says what you want to say, you can just spell it out with different flags or different letters. So India or I, the yellow flag, black dot says, I'm altering my course to port, which is left. Um, you've got Juliet, which is a J. It's a blue flag with a white stripe going left to right in the middle. Uh, it means I'm on fire and have dangerous cargo on board. Keep well clear of me. I'm leaking dangerous cargo. Kilo, it's a yellow and blue flag. I wish to communicate with you. So a lot of these flags, they came up with a whole system of communicating through flags. In fact, there's even an old legend of uh, Lord Nelson, uh, the British admiral, 
I don't know if he was an admiral at the time, but when he was fighting the Danes, they fought the Denmark at one point as well. And uh, he was missing an eye, and they were bombarding the coast. He got a signal from one of his his admiral at the time saying, cease and desist, basically stop firing, we're going to stop, we're going to try and negotiate. Uh, admiral, or not Admiral, probably Captain Nelson at the time was like, well, I he put up his telescope to his bad eye <laughs> and was like, I can't see the flags, we're going to keep firing. So, I mean, it was a lot of, it wasn't the perfect system of communication either, but... But for most purposes at the time, it worked. It was a system. Flags were important. Flags maintained their importance on the high seas and on the battlefield throughout the Napoleonic era. By this time, most nations now have flags that we would recognize today. But with the end of the Napoleonic era, and as mankind moves into the midst of the Industrial Revolution, the use of flags upon the battlefield changes dramatically, especially at the turn of the century. By the end of 1914, the world was at war. We've talked a lot about war on this show so far, and throughout history, there have been countless wars and conflicts. But the First World War was different. With the Industrial Revolution and modernization of the principal powers of that day, war was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. With the advent of machine guns and heavy artillery, charging into battle became suicidal. Rallying behind a flag now just made you a better target for a machine gunner or for a shell. So the men began to dig trenches and the worst stalemate of history began by the end of 1914. Flags also become less needed than in battles of prior wars, such as in the Napoleonic Wars or the American Civil War, due to the advent of communication systems such as the telegraph, the telephone, and the radio. Suddenly, generals are able to send direct messages to the different regiments, often with little to no delay. Now, this isn't to say that flags disappeared from the battlefield entirely. Their primary use just began to change. By this time in history, national flags were a matter of pride to many. Flags began to be used in propaganda from both sides of the First World War as a way to encourage the civilian population to enlist and to work and to continue the fight. Official flags still flew, of course, at headquarters and command posts across the Western Front. The capturing of an enemy's flag was still, however, a great moral victory, and it was still considered a great shame should your flag be stolen. It's interesting to me to see the change of the use of flags during this time and in the next world war that follows some 20 years after the first. Now that nations had flags, the symbolism that they promoted could literally inspire the people whose country's flag it was. Flags still had utilitarian functions as well, as I've said, they were still flown at the headquarters and command posts, and even in these wars, draping your flag over a building or a post was a pretty good way to show that you'd captured the place. A striking example of this kind of thing happens in the Second World War. One of, if not the most popular and recognizable photographs from the war was a picture of the United States Marines raising the American flag on Iwo Jima atop Mount Suribachi on February 23, 1945. Odds are, you know exactly the image I'm talking about. And credit to Joe Rosenthal for the expert timing of this photograph, because the image is just so dynamic. The battle wasn't even over by the time the Marines attached their flag to a pipe that they found handy nearby and raised the flag atop of it. In fact, the fighting wouldn't even stop until over a month later. But raising the flag there has become monumental, especially to any Marine that came after the time. In fact, my own father, who was a United States Marine, he used to have a little bronze statuette of this image of the Marines raising the flag, and they've made a monument out of this and statues of it. It's a pretty big deal to many. 
So while flags aren't used quite in the same way as they have been for centuries, they're still in use today. And really, the use of flags has been ever-changing since the first Egyptians raised their battle standards. The Romans had their golden eagles and standards, and the Union soldiers had Old Glory along with their battle regiment flags at Gettysburg. Lord Nelson's had his naval ensigns at the Battle of Trafalgar, and the French had their tricolor. The Dannenberg fell from the sky and rallied the troops then. The Marines raised the American flag over Mount Siribachi. Political movements, knights of old, nations, states, even cities have all had flags. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had an American flag made of nylon with a specially designed pole to hold the flag up so it could be seen on a rock that had no wind. Flags are a part of our culture as humans. Many of our flags vary, and some have come and gone out of use over the ages. Some flags are known as standards of evil, others of freedom, democracy, and hope. Some, if not most, are mixtures of both, and it probably really depends on who you ask. That's the thing, flags are tribal, about as tribal as we humans are. They're in our literature and our propaganda, Flags are a part of us. In 1969, after NASA had gone out canvassing among the people, in the end they decided of all the commemorative things that they could spare to send and leave on the moon, they chose a flag. This has been Unfurled, the story of our flags. This episode and this show has been written, produced, and directed by myself, Austin Riley Miller. I'm currently a student at BYU-Idaho, and I am producing this show as a part of my senior project. The views and opinions expressed in the show have been solely my own and not the university's. You can find more episodes of Unfurled at unfurled.podbean.com or anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you're interested in any of my other creative works, you can go to filmfanaticfan.com. Next week's episode, we'll be diving into the interesting design and change of both the United States flag and the Union Jack. 